All right, we are on. Bismillah rahman Oh, no, we're not on. Are we on? Bismillah rahman rahim Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Hamza Hussein came in first. Allahu Akbar. Samreen, Safraz, Dino, with Dawood. Welcome everybody to the Nothing But Facts, Safina Society Nothing But Facts live stream. And when I first was, was when well, we first came back from, uh, from COVID, so the message was open, like limited, and there was hardly any activity, I became almost like panicky nervous about how slow like, things were going at the message. So what I began doing is just coming in every day, right? I kept coming in every single day. And I would come in from maybe like Dhuhr to As, Dhuhr to Maghrib, or like Asr to Isha. And then there was one youth at the time that he had converted into Islam, and he was a young guy. And he also had nothing to do. So he would come in, and I would just teach him like every single day. And then uh, he kept saying facts, right? And I'm like, so one day, every time I say somebody say facts, so one day, like I was sort of teasing him, and I said, facts, right? So he's like, no, 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 you can't say it like that. You got to say it, like, like that's really, that's terrible. You can't talk like that. You can't say facts. You got to say facts. So I was like, what, what's wrong with that if I say facts, right? He said, no, no, it's like, you're totally messing it up. You're like, it's, that's not cool, man. So I was like, to be cool, I got to be basically ignorant, right? <laughs> and butcher the words. But anyway... Uh, he kept saying that until just, just literally to tease him. I, I named the, the thing nothing but facts. Um, literally just to tease him, right? <laughs> and then uh, it actually ended up, uh, it took off, right? But uh, that's how we got the name. I was literally just, just teasing the guy. And uh, here we are. It's now an official thing. Today, we're going to kick off with a very interesting article that really reminds, should remind us. How are we doing on audio? We good? Good. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that what comes out of the stomach of the bee. Okay. Allah ta'ala does not say, he does not mention that uh, the honey only, right? Yes, honey is a cure. There's no doubt about that. But he does not mention honey only as a cure. يَخْرُجُ مِن بُطُونِهَا Right, something a fluid that can be drank about the bee. All right, uh, a fluid that can be drank by the bee. It has a cure for people. So the verse just says from its stomachs. Okay, I want to get you for the someone's asking me already what su- what what uh, surah. Well, we know what surah is going to be. We're talking about the bees. So. Okay. Mm. Let me pull up this article. Now, a doctor sent me this article, so it's got to be somewhat factual, right? So, now, here's the article. Boom, we got it. I don't know about this, 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 the bright side news. Is that the brighter side news? You ever heard of it? 
Is it is it the real thing? The, anyway, uh, a doctor sent it to me. So, but we, the research is all there. What Allah says: يخرج من بطونها شراب مختلف ألوانها مختلف ألوانه فيه شفاء للناس. Good. إن في ذلك لا آية لقوم يتفكرون. Right. مختلفا مختلف ألوانه فيه شفاء للناس. Now the cancer community, listen up, folks. Put this on the MedNet because uh, this is like, uh, hey, hey uh, any of you have cancer? Make sure your doctor's part of this organization because if he's not, you just fire him right away. Uh, you ever heard of it? All right, Dr. Nibad told me about it. Dr. Nibad, who's turned into like a Paralympian athlete uh, who bikes 50 miles a day, but he's a cancer doctor, he's, which is he's an oncologist, and he told me he's very proud of this website. That was made essentially. It's not a website. It's it's a knowledge sharing organization, right? Oh, yeah. Knowledge sharing. Where you run like miles? No, no, that's something else. No, this uh, there's a cancer organization. He's a he's an oncologist, right? So one time we were chit chatting, and he said there's a website. He's very happy because Syrians started this website, and he's Syrian essentially, Lebanese, but very much similar to Syrians in culture. But he he said that they share knowledge on this website and. But this is it. Cancer community is buzzing over a new study that says venom from bees can kill cancer cells. All right? So, you got cancer? Go piss off some bees. Get yourself stung. But no, they actually use this as they do it in a, um, in a controlled manner. Scientists at the Harry Perkins Institute of Medical Research in Western Australia tested venom from more than 300 honeybees and bumblebees against two types of aggressive, hard-to-treat breast cancer. All right, listen up. Triple negative and human epidermal growth factor receptor 2. Whatever, all right? No one, this is only some technical terminology that we're not familiar with. They found that a compound in venom called melatonin could destroy breast cancer cells within an hour. Whoa, without causing harm to other cells. So there you go with your, um, okay, I sort of is asking, um, it's, he, he said it's called the MedNet. And that's the website where cancer physicians share knowledge about their cases, essentially. So saying, stick this in your cases. But they've probably, of, of course, all discussed this, but the, um, what he's saying here is that it kills only the other the, the 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 cancerous cells, right? So the common treatments today are what they're first you go for chemo, and if that doesn't work, they zap you with radiation, right? Now I always wondered how the radiation works because how does it only affect like how does how do you zap someone, and then the skin doesn't get affected, but it only gets the cell. So I finally asked uh, 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 another onc uh, an oncologist out in Chicago. You know Dada Salam? Their dad is an oncologist. That huge masjid, Dada Salam, Mufti uh, Azimuddin's dad. So I said, how does radiation work when they zap somebody, right? Like, why doesn't it, wouldn't it burn through everything else too? So he laughed. He's like, no, no, we don't just use one ray. It's like millions, you're literally in a microwave. You're, it's millions of rays, okay, that would not, in one of them by itself, would not have an effect on anything. And then it finally uh, gets to the cancerous uh, 
or wherever they're focusing it on. And it fries it away. But this, though, here, there's the active component of honeybee venom. Melatin is a positively charged amphipathic 26 amino acid peptide. How'd you do in chemistry, have you? Terrible. Terrible, me too. Researchers found it was able to target cancer cells by shutting down the activity of molecules overexpressed in these cancers. Now, what, what is this? You're, you're, you're probably just tuning in and wondering, what, what is he talking about? Well, the reason we're talking about this is, is mainly that, that uh, it connects with the verse of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Nahl, the Surah of Bees, uh, which mentions that comes out of its stomach. شَرَابٌ مُخْتَلِفٌ أَلْوَانُهُ A fluid or a drink, sharab, that something you can consume, that's color is different, right? فِيهِ شِفَاءٌ لِلنَّاسِ But it has a cure for people. And here, I mean, this is a serious cure. They also found that when used in conjunction with chemotherapy drugs, the melatonin helped form pores in the cancer cell membrane, which could potentially allow therapies to better penetrate the cells. Okay, good. So you so you make sure that you don't knock out the chemo industry with this article, uh, so that you say that you know when the venom is mixed, used in conjunction with, or not mixed, but used alongside chemo, chemotherapy drugs, then the melatonin helps form pores in the cancer cell membrane, which allows therapies to better penetrate the cell. Wonderful. Now, while the tests for this study were only done in a lab setting, the researchers believed the compound can be synthetically reproduced as a treatment for breast cancer. So that's what they always do. They find this amazing thing in nature, then they just re reproduce it in a more efficient manner. Okay? It's a much more efficient manner uh, by, uh, of reproducing it in the lab. And they could just isolate you know, what is, whatever is the active product. That's usually how, they, how it goes, the active ingredient. Okay. Let's see, I want to see how he translates sharab, drink, all right, of different hues. This is, again, one of the logic behind this was you would ask yourself, how in the world would a, would a prophet uh, from, or, or a person from way back in that time know to be general about it? Because we know honey. Even in that time, they, they knew honey was a therapy. But to be general about it, because it says from its stomachs. So it's not just honey. Because you know, honey's not, you don't necessarily find honey always in the stomach of the bee. You find it in the hive. But from the stomach is the venom. So the bee venom, which we're all afraid of, okay, apparently now it's really a big deal. So Dr. Marlena Toro, a breast cancer researcher at Moffitt Cancer Center says, while the discovery is impressive, more research would need to be done before it could be made, become a viable therapy. Of course, you got to study these things a million thousand times before you actually make it. And then the FDA has, like, really stringent rules because they don't... By the way, when I went to the Dominican Republic, oh my gosh, I have such an appreciation for rules now. Just because when you see chaos... And I, I don't know why, I wasn't, maybe I just wasn't aware of it when I went to the other, you know, the Arab countries. Maybe I just got used to it. But when you see chaos, and just everything is sloppy, and anything goes. So to open a restaurant, you need license, a license. What if someone gets sick? 
Well, I went to a restaurant there. I went to um, I went to Google. I typed in Halal restaurant. I go to the restaurant, and it's a guy's house, right? <laughs> There's zero regulations, zero nothing. I'm just eating like it's like an invitation, and I leave him uh, uh, some money on the table. Like, there's no regulations for anything. Probably in medicine, there's just no regulations. And people are probably getting messed up all the time. As, as, much, as, um, as much as the, uh, you know, it feels like you're, you're, you're more free, but you're also more free to get screwed, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's really the truth. You probably can't sue anybody. You cannot sue anybody, right? Whatever you get, you get. No, you, whatever happens, happens. You're on your own. There's no lawsuit. You're on your own. Khaled just saying has the time for MBF change. No, we are at, we're at one thirty time, but sometimes things happen, and this time the 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 charger stopped working. I don't know why. These days, you literally need a whole kit of chargers. What are they called? Toggles that connect from one charger to the next. All right. Then the good news is this study has shown that melatonin can disrupt signaling pathways in breast cancer cells that are responsible for growth and the spread of disease. However, there have been many studies where compounds have proved successful at killing cancer cells in the lab or animal models, but it has taken many years for those discoveries uh, uh, make it pa to patients, if at all. So the, the lag time from discovery or theory, really, to patient is a long time. There's also another reason. They don't like to disrupt industries here, right? It's, it's, I think there's some good to it. It's like safety, but it's also they don't want to disrupt the industry. And here you have, like, all these other treatments going, and there's an economy behind these treatments. We wouldn't have treatments available to us if it wasn't an economy, a viable economy, meaning that people could wake up from 9 to 5, all they think about is treating you, and you can get access to it. That can't happen if he's not getting paid for it. So you can't just upend and disrupt an industry like that. They, they have to ease it in. And you have to, like what they said in the article, um, you have to work with that current industry. It's got to fit in, right? So they're saying, that, oh, it works great in conjunction with chemotherapy drugs. I don't know if that's like the case or if that's like, um, you know, just like something they're putting in there to make sure that they're making everyone happy because there's a lot of economics involved in, in medicine. And it's not all like demonic, like San, uh, what is that company called that, uh, that, that, that's involved in all the food and, and soil and everything, Monsanto. It's not like all demonic, like the way they, uh, that Monsanto is uh, presented to us, but it's necessary. You can't just disrupt a, a, a critical industry like the health industry like this. Taro added that approximately half of all current drugs are derived from natural products, which demonstrates the potential of using bee venom for drug discovery. Nature is a great supplier of active elements and chemical synthesis. Okay? The chemical synthesis has made it possible to provide many drugs of natural origin in the dosage required for therapeutic use. And that's the biggest thing that a lot of people, uh, they, they don't think about when they think about natural medicine. I want to go natural. Yeah, but you don't know the dosage, right? And you don't know what the reactions. So it's about the dosage. That's, that's the key. And the original supply... It said it's like oftentimes very limited and very difficult. 
right? There's a Netflix documentary on bee, bee sting therapy. And they got to get the they get the bees, and they cup it around the area. They put the bee in a cup, right? And the key, the bee Im- immediately feels upset, okay? And then they sting the person there, and the, they say that they get good results. Now it's not like considered actual medicine, but it's a therapy that people say works for them. If it works for them, it's good for them. I don't think there's a law against stinging yourself, right? So, but the key is, the issue is, the if you're going to really use this, you got to study what dosage is required, what are the active ingredients, what about other ingredients that mix with, you know, there could they could mix with, uh, you know, things that in the body or other medicines that you're taking that are not good. So when Allah says, fihi shifa, there is a cure in it. Does not mean it's 100% a cure 100% of the time. That's something very important that many naive people think. It's a, hundred, it's a cure 100% of the time. Like black seed. Black seed, al-habbatu soda, is a big deal, but because the Prophet ﷺ said it's a medicine, but he didn't say at any rate. It's like a certain rate that you have to take or else you actually could harm yourself. Like water. You could, you could over-drink. Probably, I'm sure there is a concept of over-drinking water, as, as neutral as water is, right? You could probably over-drink yourself to the point of uh, ill health. All right, nature is a great supplier and active element, she says. And, and then there are 20,000 species of bees. So here you go. There's a ton of type of bees. So which bees is, is, is mentioned here? And this is where it's like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always wants human beings to, to be scholars. Like he wants study. There's a lot of factors. Okay, so the bee, we all know that now. And honey is a general cure for, for, for in living. We all have it in our homes. But Allah Ta'ala wants scholarship. He wants knowledge. He wants specialized study. Because that's really how human beings live. And if everything was available to everybody, then I wouldn't need a doctor. You wouldn't need a mechanic. We wouldn't need a mufti, etc., etc. So there's 20,000. Now we get into the really hairy details. 20,000 species of bees, which ones work and which ones don't, right? Okay. With the study looking at the European honeybee found in Australia, Ireland, and England, the bee population from each country produced almost identical effects in breast cancer. It also looked at the venom from bumblebees, but this did not have the same effect and was unable to induce cell death. So the venom of bumblebees which is your, uh, the little fatter bees. They're, they're, they're fatter, they're shorter, and they make a lot more noise. Okay. Maham says, I work for a- MHRA, where the UK's medicine regulator, ensuring public health and patient safety is our main priority. So am I speaking, am I saying what makes sense or no? Right? I'm, I'm making sense here that they got to make sure they go really slow on these, you know, these... Uh, these new discoveries. Okay. It also looked at the venom from bumblebees. Uh, we, we said that. Uh, one of the first reports of the effects of bee venom was published in 1950, where venom reduced the growth of tumors in plants. I didn't even know plants get tumors, but well. Over the past two decades, interest in apitherapy has grown. So I guess that's what they call it as has interest in the effects on honeybee venom on different cancers. Okay. Despite this, 
the molecular mechanisms and selectivity of biomolecular components of honeybee venom as anti-cancer agents remain largely unknown, prompting the new study. Understanding the molecular basis and specificity of bee venom against cancer cells is key for developing and optimizing novel, effective therapeutics from a natural product that is widely available and cost-effective to produce in many communities around the world. All right, very well done. So, good article and really interesting stuff. And if I had went into medicine, I would have never went into the research side. I don't have the tolerance and the patience for this academics. I need adrenaline. We need action. I would have been a surgeon, no doubt about it. No, surgery. Emergency room surgery on top of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would have been an emergency. I would have been a great emergency room because I love the pressure, right? And I love the idea like this is it. Life and death. And not life and death and then let's study what medicine to take. No. Give me. Glove me up. Glove me up. Give me saws, knives. Take care of this person. You wake up, you thank Allah, and then you thank me for saving your life. Uh, that's the type of medicine that I would have been in, right? I'm talking 2 a.m., cups of coffee, all emergency room boom excitement yes that's what i would have been into that's the only medicine i would have been uh, uh excited about now let's get to our real forte here that was segment number one of today's nothing but facts live stream for which we have some special guests coming by the way all right so for any of those in the medical industry i'm sure you love that segment uh, and probably maybe not my butchering of, you know, medical terminology, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, but that was segment number one. Segment number two is that we are going to tell you that you can support this live stream by going to patreon.com backslash Safina Society. And we need to update our credits. We haven't updated our credits in a long time. So we need to update our credits because a lot of you give us a lot of support, and that's why we're able to do this. Uh, as I said, anything that's going to develop Okay, is has to have an economy behind it, and your support is always greatly appreciated. I pray for may Allah Taala give all of our patrons the reward back in this life and the next that they could see and be happy with for supporting this live stream. Again, it's Patreon.com/backslash/SafinaSociety. Comment from Maham. Academics, they're a genre on their own. Oh, they are. Who has the sabr to sit through those, the, those, you know, even in Islamic scholarship, there are academics. And there are people like, like myself who are, right, we need to have some excitement here. We need to talk to people. We need to do something new. I want, right, we need to make a difference. The academic can sit with the books. And they're, they're very important people, but it's a, it's a genre of human beings that's on their own. All right? You tell him the budget is around $45 million, says Maham, they'll turn around and say, no, we need 45.786 million. <laughs> Death by detail. Academics, man. Clinical trials are easily manipulated and don't always follow the rules, says Joanna S. So there are a lot of people here who know a thing or two about clinical trials. Who knew that Maham was in this? And now Joanna's pitching in, telling her... Uh, experience with this. Levon Brown says working for a CRO, it's a difficult manipulate it's difficult manipulating a clinical trial. A lot of regulations and moving parts plus budgets. So Levon has an opposing opinion to Joanna. All right. So we have 
clinical trial beef in the live stream, in the chat. All right, Dino says, no, Joanna, it's true. It's all in the stomach. Maintaining a healthy microbiome is key. Levon, there's a lot of oversight. All right, so this is a whole world, and my mother-in-law worked in this field, too. She, she produced medicines for one of these drug companies on Route 1. So, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but we're like the hub of all these pharmaceuticals. If you drive past ICJ, the masjid, like MBIC is here. So this is how New Jersey works. M Manhattan's here. Newark Airport is here. And then a little bit, you come to hit New Brunswick. Then you keep going south. You're going southwest, right? After New Brunswick, you hit Princeton University. Okay. Between New Brunswick and Princeton University is ISCJ, the newly meant school and the big local general mosque, or the central mosque, I should say. Between ISCJ and Princeton is all the pharmaceuticals. All of them are there, right? And the mom, the mother of all pharmaceutical companies is J&J. Like, they're the oldest one. They're the founder of the Band-Aid. They're the ones who invented the Band-Aid and the, and the first aid kit, right? And they're in the heart of New Brunswick. They own the Jets. Okay. So they're in New Brunswick. And, uh, and then all the other campuses are out in out that southwest area part of between South Brunswick and New Jersey uh, 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 and, and, uh, and whatchamacallit and Princeton and somebody here plagued, the plagued pigeon is telling me saying he's in East Brunswick okay good so you know what we're talking about Johnson & Johnson is in New Brunswick the headquarters they founded the first aid kit that's how they got rich and then they just went on and on and on and, and went into different you know spheres Segment number three of today's live stream, Asbab al-Nuzul, Surah al-Duha. Okay? Asbab al-Nuzul. Surah al-Duha is a surah for anti-depression. If you have sadness, if you have grief, if you have depression, you shouldn't. You should recite Surah al-Duha. And how do you get out of general sadness? I'm not going to say like clinical depression. Like Many people, they get upset if they're in the psych field when I speak about depression and I say it doesn't exist for a moment in a long-term period. It could exist short-term only. But what I'm talking about is your general sadnesses and griefs and upsetnesses, right? Because we have a different belief. We don't only, only believe that it's externally induced, right? Something bad happened, so I became depressed. You could actually, you could actually pull down like it's almost like you're pulling down medicine through afkar that will heal your heart and remove the sadness. And that sadness is treated like a thing that descended upon you. Okay? Maybe it descended upon you through an event that happened in the world. Yet at the same time, the the uh, the meanings are also a reason. The meanings of these surahs are also a reason for these sadnesses to go away. And that is this, the, the hope that is present in Surah, surah Al-Duha. It's just, just, it kicks off with hope. Because Al-Duha is when the sun comes up. So the Surah name itself, and the first word, Wal-Duha, is telling you that there's going to be a new day. So don't you see how there's always a new day? Like every bad thing that happened in human history, in the world, there's always been another day and another day and another day, and time washes away all these wrongs. So the idea of al-duha is that the image by itself, right away, 
there's a new day coming. You're already starting off fresh because the image of the new day, of a new sunrise, it just, it, it, coming out of that image is always, it penetrates your heart with the idea of newness, like renewal. Okay. And the night, right, when it's still. And then look at, look at this ayah. Your Lord has not abandoned you and does not hate you. Because many people think bad thing happens, I'm abandoned, and I'm maybe I, Allah doesn't like me, right? People think like that. Why? Because we, we have a natural tendency of anthropomorphism. That naturally, if someone does something bad to me, something happens that's bad, that person must not like me. But that's not the case with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because people have limited knowledge, but Allah ta'ala's knowledge is far greater. So a terrible thing may actually be avoiding a far worse thing, right? You just, you cannot fathom it. And the idea too, when you deal with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you have to know that you cannot fathom a lot of the possibilities of life. You just can't fathom them, whether they're good or bad. You can't fathom them. So you just have to believe it, right? That things would have been far worse, okay? Uh, and that's how you handle a tribulation. There's a lot of wisdom in this. But I can't always see the wisdom. I can't see it now. But there has to be wisdom. And worst case scenario, there's wisdom in Akhirah. But usually, Allah shows us the wisdom in this life first. Right? As a gift, if you're faithful and pious, you see the wisdom in this life before the next. And that's really a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Sayyidina Ali was so, not, not just wise, he was so close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He would say, I will see the wisdom while the event is happening. SubhanAllah. Like, like as something bad is happening, he sees the wisdom already. And that's a way that Allah cures people's hearts. Because it's one thing I tell you, some, I, I, I do a terrible thing to you, right? And I say, trust me. And to the degree that I trust you, like, okay, fine, I'll trust you. But, but if I tell you, and if I show you what the wisdom is, all of a sudden it becomes so easy. But that doesn't happen right away because Allah wants you to learn to trust him. So there are always some cases where you don't know the wisdom. You, you won't know the wisdom. Because there is a need to develop within us trust in Allah Ta'ala. But in many, many, many cases, Allah is just generous with his worshippers. Those who are taking this deen seriously and they're taking ibadah seriously, then Allah gives them the wisdom right away. And all of a sudden, boom, it's almost like a cloud lifts. And I'm not down about this anymore. I might be in a little bit of pain. I might be sad about the change of events. Let's say people dying, for example. But I know that this dead person, they're going to a better place, and I'm going to have a, uh, maybe even a better future. It's not an insult to somebody. It's not an insult to somebody that you have a better future after they die. Right? Taking death as an example. So this is a belief for a mu'min. His future is always better than his past. If you're a mu'min and you're, and you're putting effort, that's the key. The key is you got to put effort, Right? If you're putting in effort here, your future is always better than your past. You might ask yourself, well, I don't see that. We'll tell you, you're not seeing properly. you got to think outside the box. That's the key. Don't think only in this little box that you imagine, like bank account, health, looks. No, your future is always better than your past. That's, that's the way things are. You have to believe that, right? Because when Allah speaks to the messenger, he's speaking to all those also who are following the messenger, peace be upon him. 
right? Being on the path of a prophet means whoever is against the prophet is against you. Whatever is for the prophet is for you, right? Whatever promises are given to the prophet is given to you, right? So we take from those promises to the degree that we're following this prophet, peace be upon him. It doesn't mean just the afterlife. It means everything. It, it is the afterlife, of course, in that verse. But it's also every single day. Every single, the next day is going to be better than this day. And for the simple reason, if you want to go to the bare bone basics, listen to this hadith. Two brothers, one was pious, one was regular Muslim. Sahaba. This is a regular Muslim. Prays five times a day and fasts from the month of Ramadan. Visits the Prophet maybe once every you know, month or something. Goes to Jummah, of course, in, in Medina, but otherwise he's a farmer outside in the, in the area outside the city. So the pious one died. And then the regular Muslim died six months later. <laughs> so the Sahaba said the pious one, the, the more virtuous one, died six months before his brother. So the Prophet ﷺ, when he heard them saying more virtuous, right, he said, and how do you know that his brother did not catch up? Right? Did he not pray for six months more than his brother? Six months of salah? Do you, do you take salah to be a, a light thing? The obligatory five prayers? Do you think that's a light thing? That by itself could have caught him up. He prayed for six months more than his brother. So that could have caught him up. Also, who's he praying behind too? He's praying behind the messenger, peace be upon him. So the idea here is that it's a belief. At the very least, the life of a Muslim is always better for him if he's pious. Just that you're praying, you're fasting, you're remembering Allah more. There's also seniority with Allah. There is seniority with Allah. Someone who worshipped Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for 50 years is not someone who just started for two years, right? Even if the talent and the devotion of the rookie is at a high and the other one he's surviving you don't know what he's been through and he kept faithful he could have been through sicknesses divorces his kids went astray he went poor he uh, got rich and lost his money you don't know what he went through but he stayed faithful okay and there's a reward for that so where a lot of where a person may not have the reward of having some great skill they have the reward of longevity and you see this in in industries too so after when, when some people say, uh, you have a great career, what's the next best compliment after a great career? It's having a long career. Because you can make up for it, right? You can make up for what you, your skill level was lower, but by the years, you gain a, a wisdom that nobody else has access to. Like in the same way that people are born with natural skills of intellect, like some of these academics, right? Or in other fields, they have natural skills that we can't, I can't catch up to him because of his natural skill. Well, Allah may give a person longevity. And longevity will give you wisdom. Will give you, you'll see things, you'll see so many things. And you'll come to, you'll start connecting dots. You can't produce that in a lab, you can't write that in a book. You only can, it only comes to those who lived. And there's a wisdom too, is that a lot of these guys, these veterans, in any field, they can't really explain their wisdoms. They can't explain it. Like it's, it's something like it's a snapshot that they know right away. Okay, I've seen that before. But he can't explain it. There's a wisdom in that if he did explain it, it would, he'd be of no value, right? If he could explain it, he'd be of no value. Right? So, so that's the key here. Um, amazing story about, here's a question from Raj. He says, 
Isn't this story also that someone saw a dream of the regular Muslim entering? Oh, okay, maybe. That I didn't. I might have missed that part, Raj. They said that the regular brother, who just lived a regular Muslim life, he entered Jannah before the pious one. Subhanallah. And that may be. That's why for the six months praying behind the Prophet, right? So he, that he's got to be honored for that, right? So yeah, I, I missed that part of the uh, of the story. Thank you, Raj. So Subhanallah. Uh, This concept, uh, this, that's the verse. You, you, you lead up to the final, now you're injected with this ayah. You're just injected with energy. You're injected with motivation. You're injected with, with so much positivity when he says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you, he will, general, he will give you so that you will be happy. At that point, not only is what is coming better, we're going to receive something that will make us happy. Isn't, isn't every creature living to attain a level of, of happiness, right? Even a deer wants to drink and eat and sleep and live that life. Um, bees, trees, they'll lean towards the sun. Everyone is living and existing you know, for what would make it happy. All right, and that's what really we want, and we shouldn't shy away from that. It's one of the reasons people love Allah Subhanahu wa Taala and have devotion, is because it makes them happy, right? And you know, yesterday we we just attended three Mu'adha in a row. We talked about the love of the Messenger peace be upon him. But I wish that the topic came up, and if I had had a chance to talk again, I would have said it. People don't really understand how is it you love somebody you've never seen. Does this make any sense? So the concept and the idea is that people love the salawat first, the, the practice. Because saying these salawat, you may think like, I don't know, I'm going to try it, right? But when you do, it's, it's almost like a spiritual honey enters inside you. Such a sakina and a cure for all of these terrible things that happen to people and these feelings that are inside one are just gone. Like, I can't even explain how. Nothing changed in the world. The feeling is gone. So people first love the salawat because they experience it. You cannot just love somebody who is just an idea. You have to feel something first. If you can't see it, you got to feel it at least. So that's what we do have. We do have that feeling, right? And then there's like the other aspect of love the Prophet is purely mental. Where, for example, you realize, yeah, like if, if we didn't have a law that... I couldn't control like what people do. You wouldn't be able to control like a husband and a wife. What what is to make him control that she doesn't like go out with another guy and just leave you? Like what, what, there's no real law for this outside of sacred law, right? Okay, decency fine, but what if I'm not there? But where is there a law that says that she can't go, you know, some on a business trip with her boss? Is there a sec is there a non-sacred law for that? There there isn't. So you got guys living out there that are so uncomfortable, and it probably goes the other way too. The wife, she's got a big shot husband with like two secretaries, right? Who she never, she doesn't even know who they are, and he's spending eight hours a day with them, and then he comes home and spends three hours with his wife. How does that make any sense, right? So there's sacred law because of the law that the prophet brought down, and the and the line in the sand that his sharia drew for us. Actually, it just eliminates so many things. 
couldn't be able to, to convince my kids not to do drugs. How? I just have to show them, look, this is what happens. That's it. But that's weak. Don't drink. Don't do drugs. So all these things that are actually, like, they ruin people's lives. They mentally realize, thank God that we have this religion, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to, 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 to apply this to myself or others. And we live now, you look around, there's no drugs, there's no alcohol, there's no zina. You don't realize how massive these three things are. There's no interest debt because credit cards. I want to get something, I'll pay for it later, right? It's, a, it's one of the temp most tempting ideas. If there was interest, I would have started 50 businesses by now, right? You can't because there's interest. But then again, you fail on those, you're, you're these people. Gambling, these people are almost like suicidal, right, when they mess up. So all these is how the Prophet wasallam by the law that Allah brought through him, saved us from all these problems. So that's mental. I see it mental. But then the salawat, that's a feeling. So people are always trying to be happy. And, and those salawat, that's why people love the messenger. First, they love the salawat. Then, after some time, they start to attribute that to the Prophet himself. That they start to connect it to the Prophet. Just like in, in Islam, people love the acts of worship first. Then they love Allah after that. Because you think of the acts of worship, they give us something to do. Masajid, Umrah. You been to Umrah before? This is the first time. Good. So you, you, um, you go to Umrah. You go to Ramadan every night. It's like all of a sudden, like, I got friends. I know people. There's always something to do. So you love the acts of worship first. And then the one whom you worship, that is just comes later. So there's always got to be this connection. So here, when we say this, people love Allah because Allah makes them happy. That's a real simple answer to it, right? If someone asks me, why do you do, what's going on, why do you do this? It makes me happy. What can I tell you, right? I had issues. I said, let me give this a shot. My issues went away. I wanted things. I said, let me go to this source. I got those things. It's very selfish in the beginning, but that's okay. Because that's the actual reality of life. People care about themselves first. Right? And then after that, you, you start looking at who gave me all this. Now, you reach a point that, okay, from here on, I want to live as a grateful servant. Like, I want to be grateful for this. I want to show gratitude for this. And that's how you live. So this is the importance of this ayah. Right? Allah Ta'ala is going to give you so that you become happy. Right? Until you become happy. That means it's possible for you to say, yes, you gave me, but I'm not fully satisfied. Like, it's not that, it's not that I'm not satisfied like I'm greedy, but it didn't hit the spot yet. And it's possible. That's very possible that someone could give you a very generous gift, but it didn't hit the spot. Like, this isn't, it doesn't just, it doesn't take my eye off, you know, of things yet. And that, and when Allah Ta'ala gives a, a gift to somebody, it satisfies the difference between, you know, those hadith that if you give a human a mountain of gold and he's only going to seek another one, that's very important to keep in mind. But when Allah gives something to somebody as a gift, as a gift, and that person is, is pious and he understands how to receive a gift and how to be grateful, it satisfies. Just like the halal always satisfies. It should, right? The halal should satisfy you and the haram doesn't. Okay. So... Um, let's 
see what Imam Suyuti brought us here. He says, Akhraj al-Shaykhan, Bukhari and Muslim, and others, wa ghayruhuma. An Jundubin qala, the Sahabi named Jundub ibn Abdullah, he said, Ishtaka nabiyu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam falam yakum laylatan aw laylatayn faatathum ra'a. فَقَالَتْ يَا مُحَمَّدْ مَا أَرَى شَيْطَانَكَ إِلَّا قَدْ تَرَكَكَ فَلَمْ So the Prophet was sick. He was sick. And he didn't get up for a night or two. A woman from Quraysh, a pagan woman, she said, Muhammad, I don't see anything except that your devil has abandoned you. Because they thought, or they said, oh, he's got a jinn, essentially. So they're not, we're not the only people who uh, hears a noise at night and says jinn. These people too. Anything different? Uh, he's a jinn. So they said, you have a shaitan, a jinn. He left you. He abandoned you. Then Allah revealed, Allah has not abandoned you or left you or hates you. Another one says, قَدْ وَدَّعَ مُحَمَّدٌ فَنَزَلَتْ أَبْطَأَ جِبْرِيلَ عَلَى النَّبِيِّ صلى الله عليه وسلم. So Jibreel did not come to the Prophet for a period of time. Why is this waiting period there? This waiting period is there because something that's heavy, you have to want it. You can only carry, carry it if you want it badly. So desire will produce strength. That's how it works. Okay, Waiting for our guests. Here, can you call Imam Safwan? He's going to bring our guests. I'll, I'll just call him here. You're here. Come on up to the third. I'm going to send Habib down and come and bring you up right now. Okay. You go pick him up, gentlemen. Our guests are here, ladies and gentlemen. The cameras. Uh, see if you can make it work, but at least the mics should work. Yeah. Our guests are here, folks. So, they accuse the Prophet of having this this demon and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was waiting on revelation and becoming very sad and taking this abuse. And this actually strengthened, it strengthened the Prophet's desire. It's like, it comes a point, I, I, re- I want this. Whatever it takes, I'm going to get this. Right? Let's greet our guests and our shiuch here. MashaAllah. Allahu Akbar. Come on in. We're already on, but come on in. Tafaddaru. Because we don't have the second camera up today. Unless you can get it up, but it might be complicated. All right, we got four guests today. Now, that is, brings a close to segment number three, uh, which was Surat. All right, Al-Duha, segment number three for our live stream has come to a close, bringing us to segment numero quattro. All right, segment number four, we have uh, some noble guests. All thanks to MCGP and Imam Safwan for, oh, look who came up. You're up already. So this was the this was the gathering yesterday. This is the the first post, all right. That is up on my Instagram. Uh, 
what a panel this was. Subhanallah. Who is who is the imam from uh, from Philly? Muhammad Cromer, you said? Yusuf Cromer. Yusuf Cromer. How do you spell that? K uh, or with a C H? Uh, K R O M A H. He's quite well known on Instagram. Yusuf Cromer. He's actually uh, man. He, he owns a suit company. Is that where you got your suit no, from? No, unfortunately <laughs> not. But one day, yeah, yeah, he's an Azhari. He's at, he lives in Egypt. I think between Egypt and the states. Okay, okay. And, and Atlanta, yeah. In Atlanta. Atlanta. Nice. Nice. Uh, Yusuf Chrome. Yeah, they know him here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like talking about him. Hey, uh, how's the mics? All right, now you have to hold the mic very close. If any of you talk, just pull the mic very close to your mouth. So now let's go to... Why don't you pan the camera to our first guests? Let's go to this whole wall right here. So we talk to both of these gentlemen right now. All right, look at these guys. MashaAllah. So this is the duo. Come a little closer. You guys are a duo, a duo right? Um... Bring it, pull this mic next to you, right up to your, right up to your mouth so everyone can hear. Now, um, talk to me first. Who's older, first of all? Which one's I'm older? I'm older. You're older. Okay, yeah. so we'll start with you. you okay. You said that very quickly. Too. Yeah. <laughs> bring it, bring older. it even closer. All <laughs> the way up. No, no, no. Bismillah. All right, so Sheikh Ismail Bowers is from... Uh, from Tennessee. That's right, Knoxville. Knoxville, yeah, yeah, of yeah, Irish yeah. and Moroccan backgrounds, correct? Uh, German on my father's, father's side, and my mother is Moroccan, that's right. Okay, German and Moroccan backgrounds, no. right? And so Bowers is, a, this is my last name, it means like farmer in German. Oh, I should have figured that out because the ice skates uh, company is called Bauer. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, Bauer skates. So it does sound very German. So, all right, talk to us. So you, you, went, you grew up in Tennessee. Then you went yeah. studied in Al Maghrib that's right, and spent that's right. eight years in Fes. Yeah, about eight, nine years, alhamdulillah. All of it in Fes, but some of it was in no, no. Rabat? Yeah, yeah. So before that, actually, I went to Tarim. Oh, mashallah. Uh, for like two weeks. Wow. To visit. So in Knoxville, we had people like Sheikh Yahya Rodas visit, um, Imam Salik, Sheikh Salik yeah. visited. There were like retreats that they did in Knoxville. So. I heard about Tarim Dar al-Mustafa, and I wanted to visit, and I was thinking about where should I study the Sharia, and I went there for about two weeks, and then after that, I went to Morocco, and I met Sheikh Muhammad al-Yaqubi uh, for the first time, and I asked him his thoughts, and, and he told me, you know, uh, because I'm half Moroccan, and I have citizenship in Morocco, and I got married to a Moroccan, oh. he said it'd be best, you know, to try to benefit from some teachers here, uh, so then I ended up studying with him for some time and other scholars privately, like in their homes. And then I applied to Al-Qarawiyin, alhamdulillah. A lot of people don't know that it's still functioning. And, yeah. Um, alhamdulillah. So, uh, yeah, and then I came back to the States after that, about two years ago. Straight to Ohio. That's right, straight to Ohio. You guys want to vent? Sorry? Do you guys want to vent? Okay, good. Good, good. MashaAllah. So you, you, now you both worked in the masjid. That's right. You, how, how did you divide up the work? So Imam Ahmed, he was there before me for about a year. And he was the main imam of the masjid. And I was the associate imam. So I kind of helped and filled in when he was gone or... Uh, like in the summers and then I also helped with youth programming mm. so and then at the end we sort of both did youth programming together 
But yeah, it was just uh, really we uh, complemented each other. We sort of have different personalities, but we've studied from some of the same teachers and have kind of the same goals and vision. That's yeah. great. I That's think great. similar to you and a lot of teachers um, that you know, a lot of the ulama. So. Alhamdulillah, we, there is a good uh, circuit that makes things almost predictable, pretty much. Like you could predict the main things uh, which is necessary so that when people come and work together, they very easily know, yeah. you know who's who and what's what. And that's one of the reasons why there are masa'id, certain masa'id in the sharia in Islam that uh, if you think about it, it takes up, it may be you know, not a big, huge issue in daily life, but it takes up so much of the controversy. But it almost becomes a sign or a litmus test of where people stand. So just by that, you know everything about them, basically. It points to, like a it points to their manage. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. All right, so let's now turn to your friend. Now, we met a long time ago. You were going to do yeah, that yeah, coffee shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was coffee something shop. that didn't work out. It? Yeah, you, you know, mentioned that. Yeah, subhanAllah. I think we met while I was um, living in Allentown at the time. Yeah. It was about seven years ago. It was a long time ago. I had the honor of, of spending some time living in Allentown in the beginning. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that we had several projects lined up, um, and, and I think that was one of them. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, mashallah, I was telling, I'd, I'd like to tell, tell those tuning in, that when I met Dr. Shadi, you know, uh, it was by accident, because <laughs> it was dinner time after the gathering. And he was literally the most unassuming person there. He was just sitting there with his plate of food, you know, eating very little. I, I remember <laughs> the details, actually. Eating very little, unassuming, very, very humble. I said, Salaamu Alaikum, uh, what's your name? Up, oh, Shadi. Uh, oh, mashallah, did you study? Yeah, yeah, you know, I studied, uh, I studied a little bit. You know, nothing, <laughs> mashallah, very, very humble, unassuming um, and it was, a, it was it's, it's really an honor to know people like this because that's the that's the true quality of Ilm. So we see that in you. Hey Habib, could you uh, pan the camera over a little to Ahmadib because we're yeah. That's a good angle. No, that's a great angle. Actually. Not for the Instagram. That, that's, that's, that. <laughs> that's all that's necessary. There you go. Put him right in the center. That's good. Mashallah. That should work. All right. So talk to me. Then you went out and you. Um, uh, you said that you went out to uh, Egypt. Harun so, mentioned you. Harun yeah, yeah. Saleh mentioned yeah. you today. Mashallah. Yeah, we 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 met. Uh, we met over voice note. What's yeah. voice note? <laughs> and then you met in Egypt. Yeah, we met in Egypt um, after doing like a, a formal program in Cape Town. I did. I was doing my master's degree in Islamic studies. Yeah. And uh, with Imam Safwan, Mashallah, that's where we met oh, and became so very very close. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Really good history. And I wanted to actually, uh, I finished quite quickly, but I took the next two years of my master's to take the thesis a little slower. Yeah. I was doing a ma'lum and dimdurura, complicated subject. So I, I went abroad. Okay. Uh, and, and that was Egypt. your master's? On that was my master's. What school? Um, Bayan. Oh, Bayan. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I did it at, through Bayan. Sheikh Jihad Brown was my advisor. Um, Imam Jihad Turk uh, and Munir. Yeah. Professor Munir was also my advisor. And so, yeah, I sat with some of the scholars. Sheikh Ali was one of them. And I just you know, I started asking them these questions. Yeah. And I figured it was, it was a good time for me to continue developing um, and continue uh, studying, as you know, Sheikh, better than we do, that, you know, that it doesn't stop. 
the pursuit. Yeah. You know, there's no such thing as a, like a, like a six year to become a sheikh. Like there's yeah, no such yeah. thing, right? The, the, this is a never ending pursuit. And I think that was just another phase of it. Um, and then I returned, you know, uh, to serve, you know, at the beautiful masjid in Toledo, Ohio, where uh, I was able to serve there with three years with my best friend, Sheikh Smaid Bawr, The thing is that it's not only that um, there's no such thing, like just to study or just and stop. That may be a good thing if someone's going to become a qadi or a mufti, right? Mm. But also there's another factor you have to think about. There's no, there, you can't leave people. If you have one like benefit for somebody, people are thirsting and dying. Right. They need, you know, it needs to be transmitted because our competition, they have multi-million, billion-dollar industries of getting to our next generation right. and, and, and to our friends and peers and our generation. They're, they're getting to people at a rate. Precisely. Yeah. So it's not just like, oh, I'm going to benefit myself, then I'll help others. But, well, what's your enemy doing? Yeah, exactly. Your enemy is already light years ahead of us in getting to people. So we also have to get to them. So that's why it's almost like it, you need all, um, what's the phrase? All hands on deck. All hands on deck. It's all hands on Everybody at every face. Even if you're a thought of in, right? Yeah, okay, be a thought of in. But you didn't, you should have learned something. Right. So you now, you need to learn what is the adab of me passing this on. Right. And then you need to pass that on. Right? Someone who doesn't know. Exactly. The f- first thing I was taught was when you learn fara'id al wudu, you go home and you teach that to somebody because mm. someone doesn't know it. Mm. Right? And most people know how to make wudu, but they don't know what's the difference between what's a fard and what's a sunnah. Right. Exactly. Which is important because yeah. if they're ever in a situation where they're going to miss the time, they need to just do the fara'id. Right? And yeah. then make the prayer on time. But also, there's a logic to learning fara'id and sunan and nawaqid is that it gives you a logic and, and any kid who has a brain one out of like let's say 50 kids in a community really has a sharp mind right. and is not going to tolerate like a, a, general. A, a general fluid okay just do it this way I need to know okay what if this happens right. like what if that happens mm-hmm. sometimes when you see those details in fiqh and you ask yourself well this is not this is not practical let's just stick with the fitra no the fitra some fitras wants to know Allah. like has to know you gotta have to know so I remember when I was growing up and saw a hadith of, of the mutashabihat. Okay. These two hadiths are bringing opposite things. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's got to be an answer. Like I know there's an answer. Right? So, oh, no, no, just don't ask the question. But then again, that that's, this doesn't sit right with anybody. Mm-hmm. Right? If you ask the question, it has to be answered. The fitra may be that you don't ask, ask the question. <laughs> right? But once the yeah. question is asked, it must be answered. Otherwise, that's a fitna mm-hmm. for people. It's a fitna for people. So it has to be answered. Now, so tell us about your next uh, endeavor. It's going to be a PhD? Uh, Both of you are doing PhDs. Yes. Right? What's your topic first? So um, I did a master's um, at Emory on Mushkir al-Hadith. So this is a theological interpretation of Hadith that are Mushkir. You know, like for example... Define for our audience, what is the meaning of Mushkir? So... Theologians in Islam, they explain <clears throat> that there are certain things that are impossible for Allah. Mm. Yes, impossible for Allah. So, for example, Allah cannot be ignorant. Impossible that Allah can be ignorant. Contradictory. Contradictory. To the meaning of Allah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So, there are verses in the Quran that 
if you just translate them into English or you try to understand them from their apparent meaning, they may be anthropomorphic. Make God into, give him some physical features that, there's nothing like him, so he's not like that. So, Mushkil al Hadith, this topic is taking a Hadith that may seem anthropomorphic outwardly, but explain, interpret them in a, in a way that is that is possible to escape that anthropomorphic interpretation. So for example, the first hadith that, and, and, and so my topic was on uh, Ibn Furak, his mm. text, Mushkil al-Hadith wa Bayanu, which hasn't been translated, which hasn't been worked on. This is your master's, master's thesis? Master's, okay. right. Yeah. <clears throat> because now I'm going to continue that into my PhD. Before, so, I, before you continue, I'm thinking to myself, uh, what professor in Atlanta is grading that, right? <laughs> Well, you know, (laughs) right? (laughs) What do they know? What do they know? I'll tell you. Actually, there are two professors at Emory that I was very impressed with: Mm -hmm. Devin Stewart, yeah, and Vincent Cornell. Okay, do you know Vincent? Yeah, I've heard the name before. So, I mean, I was impressed with them, and uh, Alhamdulillah, I did well, and 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 I think they really liked me as a student, and they helped me and supported me in this research and encouraged me. But the first hadith Ibn Furak mentions in his book, by the way, Ibn Furak is the student of the student of Imam al-Ash'ari, yes. great Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari. These are three Abu Bakrs in, the, in a row, correct? That's right, that's right, right that's right. Yeah. Uh, so the first hadith he lists there is, قَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ خَلَقَ اللَّهُ آدَمَ عَلَى صُورَتِهِ Allah created Adam in his image. Mm. Now the question is his is talking about who? Is it that Allah created Adam in Allah's image? If you say that, there, there's an apparent anthropomorphic interpretation. So Al-Qadi, uh, um, uh, Sheikh uh, Ibn Furak, what does he say? He says, no, there are many ways of us interpreting this. One of them, he says, is Allah created Adam in his own image as a man, not as a baby, not as a child oh, that I developed, see. right? Yeah. So Allah created Adam in this image. So it removes that anthropomorphic interpretation. Mm-hmm. Anyways, the point is, I did that for my master's and I translated um, sections of this text. And for my PhD, I am going to try to translate the entire text and kind of write an analysis of this subject. Because what I found is there's been a lot of research in Western academia on ta'wil al-Qur'an al-Kareem. Yes. Like interpretation of al-Qur'an al-Kareem. But I've literally found nothing or very little on hadith. Mm -hmm. On interpreting hadith from a theological lens. So this is the goal, inshallah. Amazingly, uh, some of the sources, whether you're going to be Ibn Furaq, of course, Nawi Sharh Ibn Hajar Sharh and Qadi Ayyad Sharh. Those will be your, like, like, that's gold in there, yeah, right? Yeah. And there's actually one text before uh, Ibn Furak, because he's back, you know, this is 300 year Hijri or yeah. 360 year Hijri. There's only one text before his by a sheikh named Ibn Qutayba. Mm. He wrote one text on, on Mushkil, and then the second was, was, was by Ibn Furak. Mm. And then, yes, there are many, many resources that we have on how to interpret, interpret this hadith. At Al Qarawin, we studied the Sharh of Al Qurtubi. On Sahih Muslim mm-hmm. and uh, Al Ubbi on Sahih Muslim, and so you see how they deal with these ahadith. Yeah. So one of the big issues that people, when when they when they hear the phrase "impossible for Allah," they get very nervous. They get very upset. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I realized like, I think the right phrase would be, or you tell me what you think about this, is uh, contradictory to the, to the attributes of Allah. Yeah. I think that is a better translation. No, no. Yeah. It contradicts what, we, what Allah is, yeah. right? Yeah. It's we inconceivable. Know, you know, exactly. Because yeah. like in beginner's text, we study what is wajib, yeah. necessary for Allah, and yeah, that which contradicts who Allah is. Yeah, right? contradictory because at that point, then you say, no, no one wants to be contradictory. No one wants a contradiction. Mm -hmm. But yet at the same time, when we say impossible for Allah, it requires, it requires not ilm of musarah al-mantiq, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And many people don't have this. So they're thinking, you're saying impossible linguistically. Mm -hmm. Oh, that means Allah's limited, right? So the immediate, I see this, I can't tell you how many times, even from people who are fuqaha, who don't study kalam. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of manahij out there. They have a lot of fiqh, and they memorize the entire Quran. But they never studied yeah. Kalam, let alone the terminology of mantiq, yeah. right? So that's why, like, logically, or um, it's inconceivable to, uh, and contradicts the actual attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But once you say that, then people can receive that, right? They could, they could, uh, they could accept that without the nervous reaction of, are you saying Allah is limited? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is why, uh, this is why our ulama would teach us the importance of studying mantiq logic if you want to um, if you want to specialize in theology subhanallah you can't just study aqidah and study books without understanding logic yeah. and that's why they they removed that which doesn't conform and does and islam won't accept but there are a lot of principles that are necessary to understand allah gave us a mind yeah. and it works in a certain way yeah um, and logic is a, a, a self-discovered subject i mean if you leave some leave human beings out by themselves they will come upon mantiq. It's not something that has to be transmitted, nor does it have to be discovered in, in earth, in nature. It's something that human beings themselves will come, combine, come with these kuliyat and these principles, right? right? right. That's why it's, a, it's um, there is an actual official, there's a term for it in, in, in epistemology, where it's like a, a, a self-developing subject. Every human being will come upon these kuliyat, a kulliyat is something that applies all the time, right? Yeah. So that's, that's the idea here that uh, this knowledge is... Okay, so when they always... You know they always attribute us to the Greeks. Yeah. Okay, maybe they were the first people to write about it. And then they added some things from their cultures, right? But that just, there's nothing Greek about this, right? Yeah. This is just common sense. Universal. It's not usul al-fiqh. Far'u min al-mantiq, right? Usul al-fiqh is a branch of mantiq. So if you're going to talk in, if you're going to have a specific logic, the logic of how to in, in, uh, interpret the Quran and the Hadith, there must then be a general logic of how to interpret words in general, right? Not just the words of Quran and Hadith. That's usul al-fiqh. So, so mantiq to me is that something that it's, it's extremely important to know the fundamentals of it. Everyone's got to know the fundamentals, right. right? And the importance of that kalam cannot possibly contradict one another. You know, this makes me think of yesterday, Shaykh yeah. I mean, when he talked about Adam alayhi salam, he, he made this mistake and then he asked Allah to forgive him and he made dua using also the name of the Prophet and then Allah asks him why and Allah knows 
But he used logic. Yeah. Didn't he say, because I saw his name connected to you, so I knew he must be important. Yeah. yeah. So even with Adam, alayhi Subhanallah. And he's created with this fitra immediately. Mm-hmm. And that's what one of the unique things about Sayyidina Adam. He's created with uh, clothed, with adab, mm-hmm. because he says bismillah, mm-hmm. right? Before he eats, he's created with adab, and he's created with, with aql, because he makes judgments. Made a judgment immediately when he saw La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah on the arsh. Therefore, he must be the most beloved. Mm-hmm. That's there. There's a there's a principle there that is assumed embedded within him that what is near to Allah must be beloved, mm-hmm. right? No one taught him that what must be near must be beloved. It's like within human beings we have logic. You can't see a a, a, babe, a, a, a woman taking care of a baby except that you're going to assume. She's nurturing the baby. She's not torturing the baby, mm-hmm. right? So there's got to be there are these things that are built within us, and that's the mantik that the ulama of Islam promoted and put forth because it's the correct use of the intellect. So uh, I look forward to that, and what I hope that is that if you can make a common man's, you know, version of this this book, whatever this book is, even if on your on your way you make little booklets for the common man, right? Yeah, for for your for your your thesis or even this master's thesis, you could take little snippets for everybody because uh, our dean works because everybody get, gets knowledge, right? That's why our dean works rather than the, the way of academics where there's a guy he knows everything about physics or engineering, right? And then but he can't share this. There's nothing to share. There's nothing for him to the common man to share. Right, so but our our knowledge is supposed to be trickled down at all times, trickled down, mm-hmm. right, and that's where the the benefit is and the thumra is when everybody has this knowledge, right. So that's amazing. It's amazing uh, thesis, and um, I always find Imam Al Nawawi's um, commentary on uh, the the these ahadith, to be so powerful. And I actually save on my phone. I have it as um, you don't need to carry anymore th- these days like knives and stuff, <laughs> you carry screenshots, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I have an album here. I have a whole album called Tenzi, right? I have a whole album. And the first one is Imam al uh Tenzi passage, <laughs> right? Mu'amalat, uh, where he says, I'alam anna li ahli al-ilmi fi ahadith al-sifati wa ayat al-sifati qawlain. No, right? Ahaduhuma... Uh, let me just say it in English for everyone to, to understand. This is the great Imam al-Nawi. Know that regarding the verses and hadiths of the attributes, the people of knowledge have two opinions. First is the way of most of the salaf, or all of them, and it is to speak about their meanings. Or Sorry, it is not to speak about their meanings. Rather, they said it is obligatory upon us to believe in them and believe in a meaning that befits His Majesty and grandeur. With, all full, with our full belief, and this is the important exception, that when they do talk about that, when they say we don't even ask, we don't discuss it, but they also, with our full belief that there is none like unto him and that he is transcendent beyond having a body, movement and displacement, having a direct, uh, and having a direction, right? And other qualities of contingent beings, and I put this in red, right? This is also the position of a group of theologians, Right, Kalam scholars, and it is safer. The second opinion is that of the majority of Kalam scholars, and is that they are interpreted with that which is appropriate to its context. Only those who are knowledgeable in the language of the Arabs and the principles of both the legal method and 
legal method and individual cases, al-usul wal-furu' is a regular practitioner in the field of knowledge can enter into this domain. So this is Imam al-Nawi's Sharh, which is on one of the first uh, Hadith al-Sifat. Uh, it's, it, you can find it in volume 3, but I can WhatsApp you. I can send you all this, this, this little clip. This is my weapon. Right? <laughs> Anytime you. someone answers, ask this question, uh, don't talk. Take this. They say, okay, so you have you care more about Nawawi than the Salaf. Said the Salaf didn't have the problems that Nawawi right. dealt with. Right? This is a Nawawi. There are Nawazil in Aqidah. Right. right? Nawazil are new matters. Like today, we have a question uh, that, for example, when I get my driver's license, what should I tell them regarding giving out my eyes, my organs? Because people, when they get in a car accident, right away... Right. That's where they, they take your, to you to the hospital and they take your organs right away right. to be used. So this is a nazila. This is a new issue, right? And we need fatawa for this. Do we say yes? Do we say no? Do we put conditions? So there are also, this word nazila, you have to know, is new matters in aqidah. Questions nobody asked before. Mm-hmm. So why didn't the Salaf talk about it? Because nobody asked. Right. Because there weren't, uh, maybe there weren't the fitr and shayateen that existed later on. Right, so that's why we look at the khalaf, the, the scholars who came later, mm-hmm. on matters of aqidah, right? Because certain questions didn't come up, so that's uh, really important, uh, and I'm looking forward to this. So let's, let's see some comments from here. Sayyid Muhammad Daniel Hassanin says, Sheikh Muhammad Awama said about this: you, you call everyone to make your own ijtihad in interpreting the Quran and Sunnah, but when we oppose you, you force us to follow you. Okay, so they're having a conversation, apparently. I thought this was... <laughs> when I saw Sheikh Awama, right, I thought he was talking about uh, some, some so a work related to this, but no. All right, let us now turn to our other guests. So, Habib, let's pan this camera. Yes, we have to. Okay. <laughs> All right, now make sure... Uh, let's put Imam Safwan in the middle so that... Because Instagram is always long. That's the yeah, problem. It's always they'll put him in the put Imam Safwan in the middle first. Now pull that mic right close to you, inshallah. Yeah, there you go. Yes, um, that's good. Put him a little bit more in the middle. Yeah, there you go. You're good now. You're good now. All right, Imam Safwan, year two in New Jersey or year one? It's uh, we're, we just finished year one. The year one. Mashallah. Yeah, so you've been active and you you acclimated pretty quickly, and I've told uh, you this before that you like fit into the group really quickly. Mashallah. Yeah. So alhamdulillah. And but it seems like you knew a lot of these, like you knew Sheikh Yasser from before, right? Yasser Fahmi, like you knew a lot of people from before. Yeah. Mashallah. Mashallah. So tell us about uh, you know this before this you were in Michigan, right? Doing time. <laughs> so yes, it's uh, it's pretty funny. But I was, I was so I was in college and I was working as a youth director uh, uh, for some time uh, under uh, Imam Sahib Web yeah. a little bit, um, and then Imam Sahib Web left Boston and Sheikh Yasser Fahmi came. Um, so under Sheikh Yasser, I did um, the New Muslims Convert Work. Oh, nice, one, nice. One or two. Um, mashallah, we finished the Quran a few times, like basically tafsir, tadabbur. Subhanallah. Um, it was very nice, alhamdulillah. Um, and then my parents moved to Ohio, so um, I went to visit my parents, and my father had asked me to give a talk at the masjid that Ismail and 
Instagram people are at. So I gave a talk, um, and there was a board member there for that masjid in Saginaw. So he came up to me, um, and he had asked me if I wanted to uh, interview. And I told him I was all set, because alhamdulillah, I had a good accounting job, and the youth director. Oh, you're an accountant. Was a new Muslim, I had okay. the new Muslim uh, thing. I was doing weddings and funerals. I was making good money. So alhamdulillah, I was just like, no, I'm all set. Um, but yeah, it ended up happening about a year later. And so I spent four years in Michigan. And um, then kind of COVID happened. Yeah. And uh, Michigan's a beautiful place. I won't, I won't say anything bad. But um, there was a piece missing, which was there's no one really there my age. Oh, okay. You know, you come, That's rough. You become an imam at 25 years old. Yeah. And uh, you're all on your own. There's not, it's not like here where there's a bunch of scholars and, you know, just 10 minutes away or 20 minutes away. Yeah. You have to drive two hours wow. to, to see another scholar, another wow. imam. You know, so it's, it got tough on me because, you know, alhamdulillah, you're in your 20s, you know a few things, but you, you're not a, enough to be independent. Yeah. You need that networking. And even, even if you, all right, so now I'm 30, I still need that networking. Yeah. Right? It's just the, the nature and uh, uh, the beauty of what we do, alhamdulillah. But anyways, um, so I felt like, you know, just not having that group of boys to fall with, yeah. and, uh, you know, having imams to learn from, no halakas to go to, and yeah. it's just all on you, and you're kind of alone. And I, I felt like I needed to switch it up, alhamdulillah. So. And also, I have to say, too, that the shiuch of, um, like, the senior shiuch of the Arab world, they uh, only got really tech-savvy in the last three years. Right, if you notice that, like they really only got onto Zoom and onto WhatsApp in in mass to the point that you could say, yeah, I can I can continue benefiting wherever I am in the world. Yeah. Like I could say that now. Like I, I take I take classes. I still take classes. I still am finishing the uh, uh, Maliki Fit curriculum, all on Zoom. Like wherever I am in the world, I can, uh, and the Sheikh knows how to use it, right? And there are younger Shiuch now who are much faster picking up these things, like so the but. Only recently, only a couple of years ago, there was no connection, right? Yeah, maybe it was because of COVID. Uh, I think that's what it was. COVID. It was such a blessing that it really... F- they it stayed at home and they had to teach. They had to, it, That's what exactly it was. And they had to learn what Zoom was. And um, uh, WhatsApp became like, everyone's on WhatsApp, right? Al-Qarawin. All the Arabs are on WhatsApp, yeah. Al-Qarawin, uh, during COVID, right after I left, the entire year was online. SubhanAllah. And so all the shiuch, yeah, they need to yeah. learn how to get the camera set up exactly. in the house and yep. do the dars. And, and also how to share files, yeah. how to share uh, screenshots. And also, even uh, something more basic than the tech itself is the actual Ethernet connection, like yeah. the actual Wi-Fi. Yeah, having Whereas, a good connection. Yeah, having a good connection may have been something that was not a priority, but now it's a priority. It's like budgeted in. It's like there's no way that I, we can live. We cannot live anymore as a sheikh in those countries. And by the way, um, not to like spill private business. A lot of these shiuch, they did far better financially because you know they're suffering. Far better financially because now they have like five ten. One sheikh told me he said he said um, five ten Western students. I'm done, right? <laughs> right. And this side job that the, the, the his job with the wizara does wizara tarawqaf. It's just for the side, right? It's uh, 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 a side hustle. The main, the main, the main thing. Yeah, and the, his main and these people were suffering. Like they, I don't know how they survive. Yeah, well, with like, tiny salaries this big. Sad. But the imams in the Middle East, it's it's expected. You know, yeah. Even when my father back in 
Yeah. When he's an imam in Lebanon, mm-hmm. it, it's known that. So, for instance, he had a teaching position yeah. at a university. Then you're the imam of the masjid, right? Yeah. right? So you just do the khutbah and you lead the prayers. There's no, you know, sohbah concepts or yeah, concepts. <laughs> yeah. That who is there, right outside exactly. the masjid, yeah. <laughs> right? So it, it's your salary is going to be small, but it's expected that you're developing yourself in other places. Yeah. But also, what they ask of you is, is much different yeah. as well. I don't know if it's a better system. Yeah, I mean, they here, the way we look at it here, there's no Islam outside the four walls of the masjid. So mm. everything's got to be in the masjid, right. right? Like I had a debate with a guy one time who was, who was talking about the, the Hanafi ruling that women shall not pray in the masjid. I said, fine, I'm totally with you, but your concept of a masjid is different because you may be thinking about the masjid of the old days in Dar al-Islam where there's really no, no need for her to go. She's got Islam everywhere. She's got family. But we're talking about people who will not see Islam, not hear a word of haqq, a word of ta'alim, of irshad, outside the masjid. What's that? Yeah, we don't have zawa. Oh, yeah, we don't have any of that. We, pe- people hardly even have big families. Like, you could have a nuclear family here in America by themselves. That's it. No cousins, no relatives, no grandparents, just by themselves. So the masjid have actually become these massive community centers to the point, I have my theory is that if, if, we were to, if I was to start a masjid from scratch, the first thing I would make is a basketball court and a kitchenette. Allah. Right? Reason is that the basketball court can serve as, as a place of prayer. Right? We can, we can pray there. We could roll out a few mats and pray there. But then we could use that basketball court. We could use it for the shabab, and it could be used for uh, hafalat, durus, everything. Right? And then... Uh, we can't forget there's a, a, a contingent of our population. With, there are rules to masajid regarding height. So that contingent of the population, they need to show up. They need to s- attend classes. They need to do things. So to me, the actual more important, most important thing is the most functional space. A, a gym, a straight-up gym with a kitchenette, it can serve many functions, right? Now we, have, we can build the sacred space like after that. The sacred space can come after that. We can use that first. The sacred space that has ahkam shara'iyah to it. That, you know, we don't have like hafalat there. That uh, people upon janab and haid don't enter there. La hurma. La hurma, right? La hurma. That hurma, while it's the most important thing, at the same time, it's, it's the least functional of things. Yeah, it's, it's the most important in the spiritual function, but in the practical function, it's the least. So a kitchenette, closet space, gym, and a small sacred space. And the way that we negotiated at MBSE is actually that, uh, with our intention, the the rugged area. Oh, you haven't you haven't been to MBSE, but the rugged area is what we consider al masjid, right? And af- and that part that's not rugged or that has like the cheaper rugging, cheaper rugging. that's just like the, the community area. Yeah, I got triggered because someone was walking on that. Rugged. Yeah, with shoes on, yeah. right? Yeah. It was a few weeks ago when I went there to play ball. Yeah. Day. I'm just walking on the rug. And I'm about to like, come on, come on. <laughs> I know. <laughs> walking on the rug. Subhanallah. Your young man here. All right, Habib, our fourth contestant. Now, by the way, people on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook, uh, bring in your questions. Okay, let's bring in your questions that you have for our noble guests. All right, young man. Speak. Your name? Omar. Omar what? Omar Jad. Omar Jad. Syrian? 
Egyptian, okay. Because we have Lebanani, Maghribi, Shami, Pakistani, and two Egyptians. Okay, 100% Egyptian? Uh, my mom's half Libyan. Oh, okay, there we go, Libyan. So we really have a United Nations um, uh, gathering here. And by the way, you know that um, Egyptians only in New Jersey have a, a, like only in certain parts of Jersey have a majority, mm. right? Other than that, Egyptians are a minority in the, in the United States. New York is filled with Egyptians. All those street vending carts, they're all Egyptians, like 95% of them. But you can't always believe them if they say halal. You have to actually ask them. Yeah, you got to ask them. Uh, I'm sure you know that. But um, where are you actually from? So you're Ohio born and raised? Born in Detroit and then came to Toledo when I was like six, seven, something like that. Wow. The Ohio. Who, hey, uh, Habib, who do we know recently was from Ohio? Oh, Noah. Noah, yeah. Noah, so yeah. Noah is from Cincinnati? No, Columbus. Columbus. Noah's from Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. So w- the, one of the brothers who does our electronics and all that stuff and videos and stuff, he's from Columbus, Ohio. So, Colum- so Ohio is, what kind of life is out there? Is a lot of Muslims or no? Not a lot. I mean, Toledo is um, it's a big community. I, I think there's a lot of spillover from Michigan. Yeah. Um, so it comes down. We had, uh, you have a border with Michigan? Yes. Yeah, so I Toledo didn't realize that. Like 15 minutes away from Michigan. Oh, drive, I didn't know that. Yeah, drive up the highway and you're up in Michigan in no time. So okay. You feel the road difference. Wow. Well. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of rough in yeah. Michigan. Alhamdulillah, I mean, it was a big change for us to have uh, Imam Ahmad, Sheikh Ma'in, Sheikh Abdullah yeah. Toledo. MashaAllah. It, it reignited. Tulaytula. Exactly. Tulaytula. Yeah. <laughs> Rise of the Andalus. Yeah. Okay, so good. So you're from Ohio, but then what brought you here? Why are you here? Oh, you came as a, as a Rafiq. Nah. Traveling companion. MashaAllah. <laughs> That's good. That's really good. So here, Bismillah Tfaddaru. Spoils of war from yesterday's uh, M7 MCGP. MashaAllah. I bought this. Uh, whenever you get some spoils of war, I share it with the, with the crew here. <laughs> Where's Ryan, by the way? <coughs> He's in class? Yeah. Since when does he go to class? All right, here we go. Question now for our guests. All right, uh, Habib, if you can come now so we can turn the camera to to our guests. Okay, Sheikh Ismail. Question for Sheikh Ismail. Al-Hawa wa nafs Are they the same thing? Or are they different? Al-Hawa wa nafs So, I think probably Sheikh Shadi would have a better answer. But, we have a nafs, which essentially, from what I remember, has been produced by the soul that comes from that other world into contact with our body in this world. The nafs is produced. This is what mm. I recall. Subhanallah. Subhanallah. The nafs uh, encourages or inclines towards these types of desires, or you can say hawa, which is, I don't know how to translate hawa. Whims. They usually term it whims. So my understanding, and, and, and I want the shayukh to correct me if I'm wrong, is that the hawa or whims, is part of the nafs. The nafs inclines towards that or encourages that. Mm -hmm. And a trick that one of my teachers taught me uh, with how to deal with the nafs when it has that hawa 
is that it usually desires something and it could be it could be something haram but you could find a substitute for it that if you follow that substitute which is halal it fi- it, it 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 feels like it's reached satisfied it's satisfied so for example the sheikh he loves fast cars mm. and he says when his nafs like inclines towards something that he knows would be disliked or or haram he'll go rent like a supercar and drive it and he's like i'm good for a day that's, what he that's right, <laughs> Subhanallah. That's right. Subhanallah. so um <laughs> i've always i've i've never found like the one uh, answer fi- like al-qawl al-fasl on al-qalb wal-sadr wal-nafs wal-hawa but and i would even venture to say that it is irrelevant the nature of it, but what's relevant is what does the nafs call to and what does the hawa call to? So the nafs and the, the, that the, I like the, the saying that the nafs calls uh, to the same thing for all people. So all people have this, these base uh, shahwats. Food. Food, lust. anger, lust, uh, ta'ali, mm-hmm. riasa. From the time of uh, uh, Qabil until the last human being is the same thing. But al-Hawa is always different. It never repeats itself. Specific to different people. Specific to different people and ajiyal too. And time. And time. So for example, the Hawa, let's say what was the Hawa, and the Hawa can be halal, let's say. The Hawa of, of people, let's say, in the 70s was to have this flat hair, right? And these bell bottoms. This in the halal, right? But that was a hawa that does not repeat today. Nobody wants that. Ever, not never before nor after did people want to dress in tie dye shirts, have the flat hair, and they found that to be attractive in those days. Like you were the you, it, that was attractive. Like we look back at that and say, like we don't relate to that at all, right? And today, but today you have the half uh, hair f- chopped F- off on the fade, side, fade. Yeah, 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 blue half blue piercings everywhere. Now the hawa is, some of these hawa are entering the karahiyah and the tahrim. So, and then of course the hawa that is muharram, of course for, for uh, maybe in the, in the past with certain drugs, but today would be something like changing your gender, for example. It's a hawa. You've never had this before. Not it, probably, very rarely in human history can you find a, a similar desire that people think this is cool. This is what you think is cool. Right, is to, to alter yourself like this. So, the hawa, as the wind, it's probably we can say there's never been a wind pattern identical to another wind pattern. Like when if if you could color wind, that there never two two winds that are the same. There must always be different, just like the zebra stripes, right, and the snowflakes and I, irises. So al hawa always calls to something, like. Um, Munkar, something odd, something so different, right? Uh, that's if the hawa is haram, because hawa can be halal. There was a time in the Ummah of Islam, one of the halal, the ahwa that was halal was the fez cap. The whole Ummah wore the fez cap. And now it's like only a few people wear it. Like we, we don't wear that anymore, essentially. We don't wear it anymore. But that tall fez cap with the tarbush, right, uh, was something that they liked it. And the ulama wore it too. So, so halal, but so that's how I think hawa 
is relevant to us is that the cure for al-hawa is at-tamassuk bil-jama'ah, right? Urf al-salihin, right? Yeah. Uh, right? trends. Yeah. So this this is a trend. Yeah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says when you commit shirk as in you lose your moral apparatus, when you lose unified reality, and now you're vulnerable right, yeah. to any bird. Yeah. wishes to take you any ideology any anything exactly uh, but he begins by saying khara min so you're falling into those munkar that yeah. you're mentioning all of the you know the general sins yeah but once you fall into that now there's a vehicle that's coming yeah. to take you into right and so then the rest of the verse is awtahwi bihi rih fi makanin sahib Something worse. So now, or the wind will yeah. take you wherever it takes. So the wind of the time. Mm. Right? So either it's a, a, a vehicle, a movement, yeah. right? Or it's going to be something where the hawa is going to take you right into a specific type of, you know, a sin or addiction yeah. or whatever it may be. This is a great point. So, so the, the idea is that the hawa, um, I like the distinction that you no, made. Let's bring him up. I like the mm. distinction that you made, but I, but I, I think that what needs to be understood is that what is central to to all of this is that we're mobilizing our tawheed with mantiq. And yeah. that is the problem of today, is we have a bunch of people who are learning aqidah, but they have no idea how to operationalize mm. this knowledge. Yeah. And I remember we were sitting with Sheikh Jihad Brown, you know, and he said, and when he was teaching us some of this stuff, he told us, you know, someone could go overseas for ten years, and they will never learn how to operationalize this. So I felt like he saved us, yeah, years of studying, yeah, yeah, in the, just the way that he taught, the way he approached. By things. operationalize, you mean live it, put it in action, um, to to see it in mm. things. I see. And right. yeah. yeah, so let's ask a question then. I think you're right about this 100%. Anyone who goes off the path of the deen, and maybe everyone has someone like that in their extended family, but we hope not like really in their family. But have you ever seen them go into something, develop something unique? Or they go into these, they leave the path of Islam, they just join another group. Yeah. That's like far more predictable. And they say, I want to be bold and different. But how are you bold and different? You just joined the rest of the group. Right. Yeah. The monoculture of the of the world. Right? So that's exactly what this ayah is talking about. SubhanAllah. Yeah, you're gonna go somewhere. And every single person who said, Ah, oh, this is you know tradition and stricture and blah blah blah, and I don't I'm not conforming to this, he left this to conform to something else. To conform to some other thing that's just uh, based on uh uh ahwa. Yeah, that's a great point, a great ayah. Maybe my jama for next week. <laughs> Habib, pretend you didn't hear it. <laughs> okay, next question. Okay. What is the meaning okay. of there is no contagion? Right? This hadith. What is, it? What is the meaning of that hadith? Do you, have you come upon this? No. What... 
عدوى نو عدوى اسمك اسينشلي ذات الله سبحانه وتعالى مسبب الاسباب سو هيز نوت هي ديدنت جست كرييت ذا انيشال كوز رايت اند ذن ايتش ثينج هاز اتس اون كوز سو ايتش ثينج دوزنت هاف اندبندنت باور تو كوز اتس اون افكت That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at every injunction, at every movement, we are always witnessing the ab'al of Allah, right? So even if there is an asbab to becoming sick, at the end of the day, it's only the, the, the irada of Allah, the ab'al of Allah that will cause that thing, right? So that's the basic It's aqeed of protection. Exactly. Not saying that it doesn't exist in the world because that would contradict... Even the hadith itself, because the Prophet is referring to its existence, yeah. right? So it must. Be, this is almost like not muskil in sifat Allah, but muskil regarding the waqa, right? Because when the when he's saying there's no contagion, well, clearly our eyes see contagion, but also the Prophet is referring to it. So know what he's saying? La adwa. Know what? Yani la i'tiqad fi qudrat al adwa. That's like the ta'weed of it. So what did you have to share for that? No, I, I think that's right. I think you know, this is what we are taught as Muslims that Allah's power is limitless. So uh, Allah Azza wa Jal, He is the one through his, his power things happen, right? And so we don't, you know, it's like COVID. We're not afraid of uh, a COVID because we believe COVID in and of itself has a power to make us sick or, or kill us. Right? But we take the means to protect ourselves, but that everything is in the power of Allah. Yeah. Um, uh, it was funny that uh, during COVID, I think people felt from other people that they're giving COVID too much uh, power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And that's why they get anti, became anti mask. Some people are anti mask. That's right. That's right. That's maybe the real reason. Yeah. Right? Because a guy, he's like, take off these masks. You guys are obsessed. as if he felt that there's ta'alluq with the mask yeah. right. as a, but then then again he came with a car he came with a seatbelt right but there's no ta'alluq to those things this is like uh, some norm custom so I think that's when the anti the Muslims anti-mask types I think that what they were sensing that they didn't verbalize it well enough uh, was that they're upset that people have this fear as if this thing is on its own and that these masks and and cures and that the government mandates are actual saviors right and then you took away their their means yeah. of actual spiritual yeah you know overcoming this yeah so you, you know, the and are closed now so it's it's even harder to cope and it's a very it. it's a very fine line between true the true aqidah of la hawla wa la quwwata billah huwa al-qadir al-muqtadir and we still taking asbab like it's a very very fine line between that and it takes probably a lot of discipline and dhikr and, and, and strength to realize I'm doing this but I don't believe in so every, yeah. every material thing that exists is a, an action of Allah yeah. right and so when you witness these patterns like contagions essentially you're witnessing the acts of Allah and yeah. so when you follow the asbab You're essentially having adab with Allah. Subhanallah. Right? Subhanallah. And so that's where a lot of the, a 
lot of these people fall into mistakes. Yes, right? you're right. And, and that is, in, in fact, uh, when we look at Surah Yusuf, uh, you know, where Yaqub mm. right? Where he says, yeah. And then he says, and I know that I'm not changing anything. SubhanAllah. I'm just having adab with Allah. SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah. And, That's beautiful. Um, yeah, so, you know, but you're right. The, the, the anti-Muslim is, 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 is <laughs> difficult. People have yeah. to take stances for yeah. what they believe. Uh, it's beautiful that uh, if you look at science, the subject of science is really a reflection of Allah's creation, right? The fact that we could send a ship to the moon and we'll know when it's going to land there by the minute, right? Or you could send a satellite in space and you know when it's going to arrive at its destination within one minute, right? By, by the half minute, they're going to know when it's going to arrive. So that means, that shows us the amazing, the, the precision of the khalq, the precision of the creation. Then, uh, so that's not, but our belief that they have no power in themselves frees us from the limits of this thing. Right? So the scientists tend to be, the scientists and doctors tend to be very limited right? in, in how they, they do things and how they look at things. Uh, as much as knowledge they have and the ability, but they also have limits. So our aqidah says, yes, go with what's positive of the world of science and asbab and technology, but break these limits. Yeah, break That's these limits. That's why you see you know, all those scientists you know golden era um coming up with all these new discoveries yeah, right i was going to say something about the the mask and people having too much confidence in that i read correct me if i'm wrong that sheikh abdul qadir jilani he would teach his students uh before you take medicine make dua to allah mm. and then take the medicine <laughs> you know just so that you don't forget that the medicine isn't what cures you the yeah. and and i remember sheikh azimuddin he was like, uh, he would, anytime someone would ask him for medicine, he would say, let me give you ruqya first. Mm. And then the person would say, oh no, just give me the Tylenol, right? <laughs> but, and he would be like, this is the problem, right? Like, why don't you actually believe in ruqya? Ruqya, in our cultures, many people think ruqya is like, you're close to sihr and sha'wadha. Right? It's like, oh, you're one step there. You're one step away from that but rather Allah ruqya what's the difference in ruqya and dua it's lems that's it the touching that's the only difference right so and and I have people come and say um, I need I need to call you I need to do ruqya do you know anyone who can do ruqya like do you think this is like a, a, a wizard that we're gonna get you like a wizard anybody can do ruqya ruqya is dua you make your own dua and, and, and ruqya works to the degree so they say oh give me the ruqya that works so you give them the ruqya what works, but you have the, tell them, look, it, it's going to work because you have the yaqeen that it works. I can give you, the same person can use the same dua, but he's doubtful. So then it's, that's not going to work. It's actually the tafsir of those people who said that the Prophet wasallam asked, why don't you, you pollinate like this? And then they came, they pollinated like that and they came back. And they said, Master Allah didn't work, right? And he said, But the one tafsir says, because one of those people was from the munafiqeen, and he didn't believe that it's going to work. So he soiled the iman. He soiled their iman. He's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. 
until it didn't work. Because you, when you act upon this ibadat, you have to believe it's going to work. Or action of the Prophet said, we have to believe it's going to work. So because of their doubt, that's why it didn't work. They had shak. So with ruqya, it's not, uh, why is it that uh, waliullah, he says whatever comes to his heart. He's not following a book. It's about the yaqeen, right? In the dua. And not, yes, it is about some of the prayers because Allah says, so it is part of that. Um, but it's mostly, it's the yaqeen in the dua. And ruqya to me, we should all be promoting ruqya because it creates a connection to the unseen and breaks this uh, connection to the asbab. Right. But tanzil is always to a heart. SubhanAllah. Oh, that's beautiful. SubhanAllah. So this idea that there could be tanzil yes, without a heart yeah. to have been the receptacle. SubhanAllah. And let me tell you something that uh, it's not just us and Asbab. When people go astray these days, they're going astray on things also that completely negate Asbab. Like all of this world of crystals and astrology is getting very popular amongst people. And that negates all science, all science, all material cause and effect. But people are willing to go there because that world is just, it's lazy. It, it allows you to be lazy. Right? It's just like throw a dart, put a rock. There's no actual work to go into it. Right? <laughs> and that's the difference between the shirki spirituality and tawheed. Tawheed requires work. You want an, an nuzul from Allah on your heart? Type, stop looking at pornography. No shirk will ever tell you to stop, stop right. your hawa, right. stop your shahwat. And that's a big difference. So, subhanAllah. Gentlemen, let us stop here, inshallah. Uh, thank you all for participating and listening. And I got a, we had a lot of your questions, but tomorrow we'll do the general questions. Uh, but this was a really great. Uh, we're lucky to have these, and fortunate, alhamdulillah, to have these noble guests. And hopefully, not for the last last time. And we really have to thank Sheikh Safwan, Imam Safwan. He's the one who brought him here. He brought all these guests. Inshallah, they'll come more. And and also, if you're ever off too, um, we have to create the double setup here. If you're ever off, you come and hang out, inshallah, uh, on the live stream. And I think a lot of people have questions, and they, they ask, where is Imam Safwan's social media account? So I don't know if you are. You are I am on as MCGP or as yourself? No, as myself. Okay, I, don't, I don't post. Okay, here, inshallah. Thanks, um, If you want to follow me, feel free, but I'm just telling you now I don't. Okay, okay. But you're, you're a lot follow of your stuff. Imam Deeb and, and you both have Insta and Face? As they call the Arabs call them. <laughs> All right, Jazakum Allah khairan everyone. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk wal asr. Inna al-insana lafi khusr. Illa al-ladhina amanu wa amilu salihat. Wa tawasaw bil-haq. Wa tawasaw bil-sabr. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. MashaAllah.